I never wanted to make this my platform. This isn't what I wanted to do. But I also think when my 26-year-old son is asking me questions about accountability and having me explain broader context around behaviors and things like that, I almost felt there was no way to go through this year and pretend it wasn't going on. Parting words from outgoing Board of Directors Chair Tammy Jackson, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today's interview is a first on Voices in Healthcare Finance, a conversation with a sitting board chair. Tammy Jackson was kind enough to sit down with me recently to reflect on her unique year. But before we get to that conversation, let's check in on the latest healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hello, everybody. A couple of episodes ago, Sean and I talked about the proposed rules for the inpatient prospective payment system for FY23 and how the general consensus is that it's inadequate in terms of allowing hospitals to respond to the inflationary trends we've been seeing in recent months. Uh, Sean, you talk to providers all the time. What are they up against here? Yeah, Nick. So I think now that comment season is well underway and people are are working on their comment letters back to CMS in in regards to the IPPS proposals, the 3.2 market basket increase, you know, after taking out, as we talked last time, the dish payment cut of of 0.8%, you know, the outlier payment adjustment that people are exploring very heavily right now that came out at 1.8%, you know, a lot of those outlier payment adjustments we believe and we're we're mining the data now is mostly because of the the public health emergency and those outliers were paid at such a high rate because of those extended stays which we're still seeing day increases across our inpatient stays so as we analyze those proposals and say hey you know this is true right now but won't this correct itself in the future what's that going to do to the covering hospital costs long term So there's a lot that folks are really working diligently right now to unpack, to see if some of these proposals that CMS are making is due to, you know, temporary influxes in charges and lengths of stay and what that's going to do if they implement all these changes all at once without gradually phasing them in as the data and as the claims stabilize. So that's going to be very interesting to see. And then I know you've been watching and reading about labor expenses and some supply expenses that hospitals are up against. You know, what are you studying there, Nick? No doubt. Yeah, there's a lot of data that illustrate uh, the impact of inflation over the last year or couple of years. And with respect to labor, Kaufman Hall just put out a special report showing a 37% spike in labor costs between the pre-pandemic era, in other words, 2019 and March of 2022. Now, a lot of that has to do with contract nursing pay rates, which are starting to come down quite a bit just in the last month or so. But that obviously can't negate all the expenses that hospitals have had to sell out during the pandemic to date. And plus, it's not hard to envision infection rates coming back up. Um, You know, the Biden administration says 100 million people could be infected with COVID-19 this fall and winter. And then it follows that hospitalizations could surge and then demand for nurses could once again far outpace the supply. So it's a shaky situation for a lot of hospitals right now. 
Yeah, I would agree, Nick. And, and some of the labor costs are really unbalanced. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing from providers, hospital systems in Indiana having to pay you know, San Francisco labor rates because they're losing their folks because so many people that aren't in clinical care can now work across the country, you know, in San Francisco and live in Indiana. Indiana hospitals are losing their finance staff to jobs in San Francisco because those folks can work remote and they can't pay those rates that San Francisco providers are paying. So it's almost like there's a global labor market rate rather than regional to reflect the cost of living in each area, right? So that's something else hospitals are battling. Some hospitals are battling. Absolutely. Yes. It's a totally new world as far as recruitment and, and retention. What about in the area of, of drug costs? What are you seeing there? Drug costs right now, it, it looks like have gone up about 28% across the board as an average. So that, of course, is digging into hospitals, inpatient rates, you know, higher costs there on the, those expenses. And then medical supply expenses are, are up a little over 20% um, in comparison to 2019. So hospitals are really seeing a lot of increases there in, in these stable supplies and that are needed for inpatient and outpatient care. And, you know, DRG payments or case rate payments are just not keeping up with this elevated expense. Yeah, so there's so many pressures right now. Just such a challenging time. Well, thanks for the knowledge, Sean, as always. And we'll be keeping everybody up to date on all these really important trends at hfma.org news. Tammy Jackson has had a unique experience as the chair of HFMA's board of directors since before her term even began. Originally slated to take the role in 2020, she'd chosen a theme, as all chairs do, and she was gearing up to get started when the COVID-19 pandemic changed everything. The decision was made to retain 2019-2020 chair Mike Allen for an additional year, and as that year passed, Jackson reflected on her message, ultimately deciding that what she'd planned just didn't fit anymore. So she chose a new theme, Bolder, Brighter, Better. And during her term, which began in June 2021, she's been speaking on that theme at HFMA events across the country. I really wanted to know how that message had been received and what it's been like to serve as HFMA chair. So I was thrilled when Jackson, the chief growth officer at NThrive, sat down with me to tell the story. I want to talk about your theme a little bit, bolder, brighter, better. Can you explain for anyone who might not have gotten a chance to hear you speak? I don't know that there's too many people left in HFMA who haven't, but what's your sort of elevator pitch on that theme? What has your message been? My message has been that it is altogether an acknowledgement of the journey that we have been on, paying homage to that journey because it has been tough and we have persevered and, and excelled in many cases, while at the same time creating a call to action in light of what we have been learning about ourselves. And so as I talk about the theme, that's a very abridged and short version. But as I talk about the theme, we talk about these pivots in time, right? These periods of time that serve as qualifiers for everything else that happens is either before or after. And so when you think about, and I talk on in my, my what I deliver to the chapters, you know, if it's World War II, the assassination of JFK, certainly 9-11, all of those events, they include not only the toll that was paid, 
that culminates in the event itself, but it also includes all of these positive things that happen afterwards, right? So, and I think that was the call to action for our association was how will we be made bolder, brighter, and better as a result of what we have been through as a result of what we have learned about ourselves. And it's not only about who we were before as an industry, whether that be changes that we've made in the revenue cycle and how we deliver care, all of that, but also who we are as a society. We've learned a lot about ourselves in the last 24 months on, on how we behave and treat one another, and then who we are as an association. And so that's been the, the crux of it all, like really challenging people to think about what will their after narrative look like? What are those things that they want to change, those things that we want to pull through to forge a brighter and better path forward? Initially, you had some pushback on your message from some members. What was that like? Did that surprise you? What was your response to that? And where are you now with it? First of all, I have had a ton, a ton of positive, right? Positive feedback. And I think the message has touched people in a way that did surprise me. I didn't expect a lot of the positive stuff that I have gotten. And I don't know why that is, but I think much like, you know, what I talk about in my speech around microaggressions and implicit biases, it's the negative stuff that kind of sits in the back of your mind. And that's kind of the noise that sometimes speaks louder than all of the other positive stuff that that I've heard. What I've learned is not everybody was in a place where they were able to receive it. And my message was really about health equity and inclusion because inclusion helps to foster health equity, right? And it's simply the right thing to do. But I think the packaging of the messenger, which is me, which is a person of color, prevented many people from hearing the entire message. And it it disallowed them from being able to focus on the broader message and, and, and they weren't able to get past some of the pieces of my message. And so I was surprised by that. That surprised me. What do you want members to be left with when they look back on? This year, what I've come to realize over these these last several months, it's interesting when you reflect back on summer of 2020, which was incredibly tumultuous relative to our society, right? If I speak about that, and all of the the social riots that we were seeing with all of that, I think that there was a, a really high interest and sensitivity around like engaging in meaningful conversations about inclusion and so forth. And over the year, my short year, I've seen that interest wane. And um, I think that maybe, and there's a, a bit of a fatigue out there around the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which again, if we're doing well in that, it will foster health equity. It's important. It really, really is important. And I think that I would encourage people to do their best to remove the emotion and just look at the data. This data is not emotional. And the data is there that marginalized cohorts do experience health and healthcare differently. They have tremendously different outcomes. 
It's also true, the data is there, that inclusive workplaces, inclusive environments produce better results. They have better ROIs, they have higher retention, all of that. And so it's not only a good business decision, but it's also the right thing to do. And I, I would want people to reflect on, you know, that it's not okay. It shouldn't be okay that social determinants of health should produce such great social risk and that it manifests itself, that risk does, in such inequitable ways. I don't think that we should be okay with that. And I don't think that we should pretend that we don't know that this is happening. I really want to talk about health equity. So you've, you've provided a good transition here in your column in HFM throughout the year. And I will post some links to some in the show notes for anyone who wants to go back and reread. You've highlighted some challenges. You've talked about some wins, but we have a long, long, long history of inequity and a very long way to go. So realistically, what would you like to see happen in the next five to 10 years to get us on a better path to health equity and just maybe equity in general? I think that first people have to be willing and vulnerable enough to be honest and have honest conversations about where they're at. And I think the way to do that, again, going back to data, you have to collect the data. You have to be able to to understand how your programs, how your processes, are your programs being consumed in equitable ways? Do your processes, are they able to be experienced by different socio-demographic, socioeconomic classes in the same way? And you have to measure those results. And I think, you know, the next five or 10 years, we've got to collect that data. And then we have to be able to shift the dollars away. It has to go upstream. So we have to be able to shift the investment around health and healthcare, and we have to invest that further upstream. And this is not only of paramount concern to us as you know healthcare professionals. It's it's a paramount concern to us as a society. Like we cannot sustain the kind of growth in the healthcare spend that we've been experiencing over the last, like you said, decades, right? So this is a it's an ongoing problem. And as a as a citizen of this country, it should concern us that we're spending, you know, 20% of our GDP on healthcare. And the more money we spend and it's growing, the less money we're going to have for other things that are important to us all as a society, infrastructure, military, you know, all of that. There's only enough money to go around. And so we have to think about where, what resources we need to be investing in. It's a big problem, not only for us as healthcare finance professionals, but also for us as citizens of this United States. As you were talking, I was thinking about a couple of things. I had an episode back in September with Dr. Rume Alexander from UNC Chapel Hill. She's a nurse leader. She's a professor of nursing, but she's also worked in, in DEI initiatives and things. So she had a really interesting perspective, I thought, on healthcare and society in general. One of the things that Dr. Alexander talked about in our conversation, we, we talked about positions like director of diversity or, you know, chief DEI officer or what, you know, whatever the job title is, but just a DEI leader in an organization. And she was talking about choosing that person based on their experience and their qualifications and ensuring that this is something that this person was prepared to do. 
being a woman of color, what has that been like for you? Were you ready for that experience? I've always been good at navigating different rooms and, and being a woman of color, I'm quite comfortable and familiar with being the only, right? So I'm oftentimes the only, but what this process, what these last period of time has done is it's, I can't just do that and be quiet about it. It has pushed me to acknowledge things that I personally was not ready to. So maybe that's getting to your question. Like I didn't want to, and I, I, I even said to the chapters at leadership training last year, it's like, I never wanted to make this my platform. This isn't what I wanted to do. But I also think when my 26-year-old son is asking me questions about accountability and having me explain broader context around behaviors and things like that, I almost felt there was no way to go through this year and pretend it wasn't going on, right? It's going on. I couldn't just make believe that that wasn't going on and not talk about it. It was relevant to the times. I don't know that I would have told you I was ready for that in 2019. I, I would have said no, but I sure, I sure got ready. And I think the health equity speaks to a lot of the work that I had done prior. Like I'm very passionate about value-based care. And even some of the data that I uncovered in my research getting ready for the year was really stuff I didn't even know, like decades long of research into inequities amongst you know, American Indians and disabled and LBGTQ. And so not only people of color, but so many other marginalized cohorts as well. And so that's been important for me to leave with the chapters. This has been such a, a great conversation. Um, you're welcome back on the podcast anytime, uh, whether you are chair or not. But Tammy Jackson, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, and thank you. And I would say I am a huge fan. I think you do incredible work. So keep it up. I, I'm your biggest campaigner on the road. So I'm always, I ask everyone to raise their hand. How many of you listen to the podcast? So you should hopefully see huge increases in your subscribers because I see people on their phone when I mention it. And oh. I really do. I think you're doing important work. So thank wow. you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. And I've enjoyed our conversation. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you haven't made your plans to attend our annual conference in Denver next month, you still can. Visit hfma.org for details. And if you'd like to talk with us, reach out to our podcast team. You can email us at podcast at hfma.org. This is going to be what gets me on Dateline.